Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Several years ago, the San Marino Community Church developed a vision and mission statement, and our vision of the church comes directly from this text and others like it in the New Testament. Our text this morning comes from Matthew, the 22nd chapter, beginning with the 34th verse. I invite you to listen for God's Word. Or when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, the son of David. He said to them, well, how is it then that David by the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give an answer. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious and almighty God, as we turn our attention to your word, quiet within us any voice but your own. And may, by the power of your spirit, may you illuminate your word. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Martin Luther had many criticisms of the church of his day, and I suspect there are more than a few of us here who have some criticisms of the church of our day. The traditions of the church back in the 16th century and the authority of the Pope had taken priority over the witness of Scripture. And so Martin Luther sought to use Scripture to reform the church. As a professor of Wittenberg at the university there, he nailed his disputations, known as 95 Theses, to the door of the church as a way of generating debate about truth. And this was really no abstract point, but deeply personal and spiritual for Luther. At stake was Luther's own relationship to God, And this was something that he had experienced intimately and at the cost of considerable personal anguish. The biblical message spoke to his own faith in a profound way, and that gave him remarkable confidence. The Bible spoke as a living voice, especially the book of Romans, and particularly the first chapter of the book of Romans. 
Luther experienced this authority of the Word of God that was more than merely human, and it provided an unshakable sense of certainty as this public conflict with Rome began to escalate. Luther was willing to make an argument with his life. He was residing as an Augustinian, in, in an Augustinian cloister as a monk. He received his doctorate of theology in October of 1512, and he began lecturing in Wittenberg shortly thereafter. And it was his study and teaching of Scripture that led to a process that, through a number of stages, was anchored in sort of a critical self-examination that characterized the monastic experience. Now, to the Pope, after Luther nailed his theses to the door, Luther was little more than a monk with a thin resume and no reputation. In fact, it took a couple of years before the papacy responded and excommunicated Luther. Institutional forces were used to try and suppress the search for truth. But Luther simply wouldn't stand for it. He entered this period of remarkable productivity. In 1520, finally, Rome issued a bull that extracted 41 propositions from Luther's works and threatened him with excommunication if he didn't recant within 60 days. And Luther's response burned any bridges that there may have remained with Rome by that point. And after that, he began to build a church without a pope. In 1521, for his efforts, he was excommunicated. But at the time, the church was losing power to nationalism in the area, and Frederick the Wise had protected Luther. But political changes were so rapid, there was an insistence on a hearing before impartial judges in Germany. Frederick the Wise and Charles V both agreed to have Luther, Luther testify at this upcoming imperial diet. Asked whether he was prepared to reject the contents of his work, Luther gave a carefully nuanced answer. His pastoral works he said he could not repudiate. He also stood by those works that criticized the papacy's abuse of power. The third group included writings that attacked individual opponents, and he conceded that he may have been just a bit too harsh. But because the contents defended the teachings of Christ, he couldn't renounce them either. All of a sudden, this restless murmuring began to fill the hall. And the speaker asked Luther once again to recant in plain and simple language. Luther gave his final answer. If I am not refuted by scriptural witness or clear reason, I cannot. Popes and councils have erred and contradicted themselves, and so their testimony alone will not convince me. I'm bound by the words of Scripture which I have cited, 
And as long as my conscience is held captive by the words of God, I cannot and will not recant, as it is unsure and imperils salvation to do anything against one's conscience. God help me. Amen. With that, ideas had been important before, but the degree to which ideas mattered now was unprecedented. And the dissemination of ideas through the newly developed printing press just exploded throughout the Western world. And it led to the rapid development of education of all people and the proliferation of schools and universities Now, Martin Luther wasn't in control of any of that. But there was a moment when he nailed his disputes to the door of the church. And there was a moment when he refused to recant. And that all contributed to a movement known as the Reformation. And it brought Europe from the Dark Ages into the time of the Renaissance. It was a new world where ideas matter and the search for truth would proceed even when those in power were threatened by that exploration. Some moments have power to create movement. I wonder this morning what argument we are prepared to make with the way that we live our lives. I mean, if we had to defend ourselves as Luther did, as followers of Jesus Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Now, Jesus had his critics too. Our text this morning captures that. There were people who were threatened by his popularity. There were preachers whose thunder he stole and whose congregations were diminishing because they were following him, and his word got out about Jesus, Jesus faced opponents. And one such opponent on one day, a lawyer, asked him, Teacher, which commandment is the greatest? Now, argument and debate was the cornerstone of Jewish theological reflection and development. It's the way you hammer out your faith in the Jewish tradition. There are two ways to win an argument in that context. You either come up with the correct answer or you can pose a question that can't be answered. And here, Jesus does both when he answers their question. At first glance, the question sounds profound. But the operative word in the text is, it's a test. They asked the question to test him. They didn't want Jesus' insight into any deep question. They they merely wanted to trip him up. If they could make him misspeak, they could discredit him, and they could choke off his growing popularity. We know that happens all the time in life, especially in public life. Just watch the news cycle any given week congressional hearings and Senate investigations, even presidential briefings. All questions attempting to trip up the people who are responding. 
So this lawyer asked this question of Jesus like an opponent during a debate. He simply wants to show him as a fraud. What a surprise when Jesus answers correctly right off the bat. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. That's the text that every Jew says every day. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. This is the great Shema in the Jewish tradition. And on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. And then Jesus turns the tables. And he poses a question to the Pharisees they could not answer. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They're dumbfounded. No response. Now the overall effect of this exchange between Jesus and his critics is to point out the futility of all verbal wrestling as a way and a means to live a life of faithfulness to the living God. You can only understand this by living it. How do you love God? Well, you love your neighbor. Theological puzzles may provide interesting diversions and maybe even a little insight, but the key that unlocks the mystery is faithful living. And the only argument that Jesus seems to really care about is the one I'm prepared to make with my life. Martin Luther's best argument was the one he made with his life. He wasn't perfect, but he learned to love God with his heart and his soul and, importantly, his mind. And a moment became a movement that changed the world. See, the Lord is not asking for half-hearted living as though we could love God with half a heart and half my life. Maybe you've seen a tennis player following a match jump over 35 and a half inches of tennis net. Unfortunately, tennis nets are 36 inches high. <laughs> Going part way, even most of the way, just doesn't cut it. This minute I can think of maybe six people who truly believe that they are doing exactly what God wants them to do in life. So many of us instead are waiting to find out what our true purpose is. We're waiting for the circumstances of our lives to improve enough so that we can do a better job of living out our lives. Until then, one thing's for sure, it's, this isn't it. This can't be the life God intended for me. This present life under these circumstances, that can't possibly be what God has in mind. That's sad, really, but it's also kind of useful because most of us don't need much permission to postpone our lives and to avoid full immersion in our lives. I mean, if this life really isn't the life I'm supposed to live, then why should I try very hard? It's better not to risk. Remain here where nobody expects too much of me. If anyone asks me what I'm up to, I can just say, well, I'm kind of rehearsing for life, really. 
I'm waiting for life, the real life to begin. I keep discounting what I do day to day and I keep discounting who I am because it doesn't match my fantasy of what I'm supposed to look like. And because of that, we miss moments all the time that can make a huge difference in life. Anyone, anyone watching baseball these days? <laughs> Go Dodgers. I love baseball because it's both a team sport, but it also takes individual effort. You can't avoid the batter's box. At some point, you have to gather up your courage. You have to step into that box, and you have to take your swings. And what's in your head and how you think about yourself and your chances in that moment make a huge difference. You can't be afraid there. You won't accomplish anything of value. The life the Lord is calling you and me to is the one we're living right now, right here, in these present circumstances. You and I have everything we need to to respond to God's call to life. I have what each of us have, one whole life on this earth to live. With people in it, who may be uplifted by my presence or they may be put down by my absence even when I'm standing right in front of them. And every night when I go to sleep, there's either more life as a result of my life today or there's less life because of us. Maybe on this Reformation Sunday, our lives need a little reforming. In the Presbyterian Church, and other Reformed churches, there's this old Latin expression, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. It translates roughly, the church reformed, always being reformed according to the Word of God and the call of the Spirit. The Latin verb is passive. It's God who reforms the church, the church is not the subject, it's the object of the Reformation, and God is the agent. And it's true for our lives as well. Life sometimes gets off track. Matters of secondary importance become primary. Human life needs periodic restoration to its true nature. And so does the church. We're always being reformed by God's grace to live fully, to love extravagantly, to take risks. And this seems to be about the only argument that Jesus seems to care much about, the one we're prepared to make with our lives. What commandment of the law is the greatest? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What a difference life can make when we choose to live now, not later.
loving our Lord God and loving one another. Now's the time to be made in the image of the one in whom all things find their completion, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.